The only responsibility science fiction has is to stimulate thought and entertain. And I think, in general, certainly in fiction, authors are not responsible for what the reading of their works may lead to. Hello, and welcome to the New Explorations podcast. Uh, this is Clinton, and I'm very pleased to have with us media ecologist Paul Levinson. Hey, thanks for coming, Paul. Good to be here. We got into a, a little a bit, bit of a conversation on uh, Twitter a few days ago, and there's a couple things you said that uh, really piqued my interest. And one of them, um, I think, would be fun to open up with is uh, your idea that uh, we don't actually suffer from information overload. Now, that term was thrown around all over the place. McLuhan said we did. Postman said we are living through an information glut. So why do you say otherwise? I disagreed with just about everything Postman said, even though he was my mentor at New York University. <laughs> I did agree with most of what McLuhan said. But here's what I was getting at. I, I realized a long time ago, if you think about it, I'm sure everyone's had the same experience. You know, if, if you're anything older than four or five years old and you walk into a library or a bookstore, uh, you know, there are a huge number of books there. And rather than feeling overwhelmed, overloaded, usually, you know, if you like books, if you like reading, whether it's fiction or nonfiction or history or biography or whatever, the reason that you don't feel overwhelmed is you know in that huge bookstore, and the same, of course, applies to libraries, you know where to go to get the books that you might be interested in. The same applies, I mean, obviously this is all years ago and we can talk about how the digital age figures into this in, in a moment, but the same applies to the old fashioned record store where I bought many of my 45s and albums when I was a kid. You know, you go into a record store, there were thousands and thousands of records. I actually found that a delightful experience. Uh, and again, that was because I knew where to go to find the the new Beatles album and or the new Bob Dylan album and trying to show how sophisticated I was as a kid. So the point is in, in those situations, I was able to navigate the environments. I had the meta information to get more fancy about this to make sense of all the information around me. If I didn't, then I think I would have felt overwhelmed. And so I think what people are usually talking about when they talk about today and what McLuhan was talking about years ago when he was talking about sensory overload was really not overload, but underload. In other words, an insufficient amount of meta navigational information and cues which can enable us to make sense of where we are and what we want in terms of information. You find this out, by the way, anytime you're in a, in a new city, right? And, and you're in like a maze of streets and it can be overwhelming if you have no idea where you are and where you're going. And here, by the way, is a good example of where the digital age fits in. I was in uh, Toronto, boy, it seems now like a couple of centuries ago with this pandemic that we're all struggling with. 
But uh, I've been in Toronto a few times in the past few years. One of the times a few years ago, you and I first met, as a matter of fact. Mm -hmm. And it might have even been after that meeting. I think it was, uh, it would have been in the fall of 2018. And we, we went out to a restaurant after the event. And, you know, uh, when the dinner was finished, the weather was nice. It was a beautiful evening. I didn't feel like hopping into a cab. I wanted to walk back to my hotel. And of course, I knew what the address of the hotel was, but I didn't have the vaguest idea of how to get to my hotel. Well, no problem. You know, we all have these apps now. And it basically just guided me step by step. And, you know, there's always a little anxiety the first time. I was worrying, let's say the app isn't working. God knows where I'll wind up at the end of a pier somewhere. But it got me there fine. And, in fact, I enjoyed the walk. So I think that that example applies to everything that our brains are juggling and dealing with. This feeling of we're oppressed by too much information is usually actually a feeling, yeah, there's a lot of information out there and I don't know what to do with it. I don't know where to go. I can't make use of it. And that's what causes us to be frustrated. And I think the remedy for that is higher order meta information or in plainer English, navigational information. All right. I, thanks for laying that out. Um, it brings a lot to mind. Um, so I've been heavily on the internet for over 20 years, for instance, and so I can relate to a lot of what you're saying. Um, um, I'll admit it right now, I used to pirate a whole bunch of media. Um, used to, of course, of course. It's a, right, I have a job now. But, <laughs> but, um, so, for instance, uh, you're, when you're talking about the record store, um, before all of these very easy-to-use um, streaming services came around, like Netflix and Spotify and Tidal and, and, and Crave or whatnot, um, uh, most of the time when you were watching TV on the internet or movies or, or listening to music, you were, you, you were pir pirating them through peer-to-peer -peer software going all the way back to Napster, say, which I was using back when that was coming out, right, at, in elementary school, burning awful quality audio CDs for my friends on, from files that were far too small to sound good, <laughs> but, uh, um, it, it was, it was interesting because me and my peer group and my friend group, we would say, pick an artist, and then you'd find all the albums by that artist, right? Their whole discography. Here's Brian Eno's discography. Here's, a, you know, a Radiohead's discography. Here, what, what, whatever. And then you'd, you'd have, you know, 12 albums to listen to, 27 albums to listen to. It was meticulous and laborious, um, you know, to find the songs you'd like, right? Or uh, I have a friend uh, uh, with whom I've watched all of Brian De Palma's films, just one film director, Brian De Palma, right? So it's a slow crawl through an old medium. Um, the information is there. You can go to IMDb and you can see all of Brian De Palma's films. Right? You can sort them uh, highest rated to lowest rated if you wanted to. You can go to a discography website. So this level of information was intuitive, or was a structured part of my environment when the environment for finding this stuff on the internet wasn't the 
wall of mirrors of ever-scrolling little tiles on Netflix or you get lost, you find a TV show, and then you lose it again, and you're scrolling through things trying to remember what the name of it, look, looking for the icon, right? The, the contemporary modern internet is far more confusing than it was even just 15 years ago. So, could that... Could that... Um, when you talk about the information to orient yourself, are we kind of being, like, spun around and made dizzy in the modern consumer's cyberspace, do you think? Yes, I do think that's a problem. And, you know, my wife and I are constantly complaining, even though we're usually in a great mood. Anytime any app that we're using dares to update itself and put in a slightly different interface. This happened to me just two days ago. For some reason, on my iPhone, they thought it would be helpful to update the alarm app. I mean, you can't get much more basic than that. But it's really annoying because, you know, if you think about it, I don't know about what most people do, but I tend to set my alarms when I'm just about ready to go to sleep, right? So, and as a matter of fact, I'm usually up until 2, 3 in the morning. So last night I set my alarm on my phone to get up a little bit earlier so we could do this interview now and I'd be at least semi-cogent, never fully cogent, of course. And, and basically, I had to look at the app a few times, you know, simply because they change things and move things around. So you are right. When, when that navigational structure is tampered with, and maybe that's an unkind word because it sort of sounds like it's going to be degraded or someone is messing around with it. But I'm just using it really in, in a more general sense when it's changed in any way, mm -hmm. not just to root out bugs, but to basically, quote, improve, unquote, that app. Then, yes, that does cause anxiety. And that actually speaks to what I'm talking about when when the the roadways that we use to navigate information are altered, then yeah, that can create problems until we learn how to use the, the new highway. I've got um, I've got a real um, lot of work on my hands when it comes to um, helping my parents get past their very comfortable association with uh, how to use a VCR to tape a television show. Right, they've got decades of experience of this visual structure on top of the analog medium of television. There's multiple channels. Pick the number, know the time, program the VCR. Your cassette tape is going to have that hour-long block on it when the hour is done, right? There's easy navigational data in the tape. You fast-forward, you rewind, there's a time code, you can see it, right? You know how much space is left on the tape, um, you know, to, you know, right, um, make sure there's an hour on the tape so that you get the whole episode of Young and the Restless, right? Um, and that entire, right, that's entirely, that all that years of training has been wasted when we foist a new digital paradigm or a new visual space paradigm onto what digital television is with your new DVR box, right? Um, I guess that's, that's my way to sort of bridge, relate this idea of changing interface. And, and I mean, I think you didn't go far enough by saying tampered with, um, um, Companies are reaching into your house and rearranging your electronics on you, and you didn't even ask for it. I, I think it's a, I, I, I think it's downright, it's it's downright evil in my opinion. But I mean, that's just, that's just right. Um, uh, so, so yeah. Again, it feels more like this is a form of sabotage of people's comfort and ability to stay oriented in their, um, 
like how how would you call it cyberspace in the structures that they think this software landscape should remain firmly gra grounded on is completely upended across these media well it's an interesting question because to, to give the tampering slash sabotage <laughs> a fair shake the the ultimate question should be decided on okay after a couple of weeks even a couple of months are you having a superior experience and i've tried to keep track of that i mean and obviously you do get used to something new sooner or later and i have to grudgingly admit and here is my inevitable optimism showing in this thing but in in my own experience for the most part with a few exceptions after I get used to the new interface, I do think that it is a better experience and that it's improved. To give you another example, obviously, as you know, I'm an author. One of the things I love about Amazon, and I'm one of Amazon's great champions, by the way, and it's in, in part because of this, is the inside information, which I think is the author's right to have on something as basic as sales. You know, a traditional publisher, and as you know, I've had a lot of experience with that. You're lucky if you get a royalty statement twice a year. Uh, and even then, you have to be some kind of, not mathematical, I don't know what kind of genius to basically understand it. it, it it's such a, you know, it's, it's usually, in my case, over four or five pages, and it's almost impossible to understand w where that sale came from and so on. Amazon has greatly simplified it. You can see your sales literally by the minute. In other words, if somebody goes on right now and buys a copy of my McLuhan in an age of social media, I'll see it literally, uh, you know, a couple mm -hmm. of moments later. So that's, you know, very exciting. And I've come to, you know, log on to Amazon a lot to see that. And Amazon, like every other organization that puts out these apps, uh, they're not as bad as actually some other ones, but at least once every two years, and as far as I can tell, for no particular reason, <laughs> update the app. But I have to say that by and large, after I get over the annoyance, I can see that there are slight or in some cases even better benefits from that. So if that is true, then I would say the discomfort is a necessary part of improving your experience. I mean, I remember I, I used to ride a bike a lot when I was a kid. And about 10 years ago, I decided to start riding a bike again. I remember, I, and it had been years since I'd ridden a bike. And I, I bought a bike and I was riding around. I went and I went back to the uh, store I, and I asked the guy, I said, okay, you know, the bike is great, but my backside really hurts. And the guy looked at me and laughed. I said, what are you laughing about? He said, you're about the fifth person who came in to say that. So I said, well, what are you doing? You're selling defective bikes? He said, no, it's the process of bike riding. You're going to have to have some pain for a couple of weeks until your muscles get used to that unusual situation. So that's a good example. Unfortunately, you sometimes when you're moving into a new situation, you do have to have some discomfort. And I think for the most part, that's what is going on in those cases of informational discomfort. Excellent. Uh, um, since, since you brought up um, pub, pub, 
publishing that that actually sort of opens the doorway to uh to uh another question that i had which is um specifically science fiction i uh, you're a little bit involved in the scene so i heard <laughs> through the grapevine listen i uh, i always say this i'm sure i said this to you already i believe in doing as much damage as possible <laughs> you know you only get one chance on this earth <laughs> and i don't know a long time ago i developed this arrogance if I think I can do something, I always try to do it. And also with me, as I always tell people, if I really love something as a consumer, to me, it's like a natural thing to try to then do it, to, to make it, to produce it, to create it. And as I also often say, it's a good thing I never had any love for nuclear physics. I probably would have blown up the world <laughs> a long time ago. But, uh, you know, back when I was a kid, a long, long time ago, I had two things that I really loved in the popular culture. One was rock and roll. And uh, as you and many of my friends might know, I had an album that came out in 1972, Twice Upon a Rhyme. I waited almost 50 years. That was my master plan to come out with my second album, Welcome Up Songs in Space and Time. So that's how I expressed my love for music, beginning as a consumer, but naturally segueing into a songwriter, a singer, and a record producer. Well, a similar thing happened regarding science fiction. Uh, I'm going to be incredibly honest. People often don't believe it. Maybe with one or two exceptions, the only classic works of literature that I've read in my life are the books by Charles Dickens and Thackeray and Melville that I was assigned to read in high school and college classes. I never took one of those out of the library of my own volition. <laughs> I never bought one either. What I did take out of the library when I was a kid are science fiction novels. As a matter of fact, when I was in junior high school, one day I got this request from the junior high school librarian. I remember her name. Mrs. Dason, very nice woman. She called me down to her office, but she had a rather grim look on her face. And she said, do you know why I've called her here? And I said, no, you know, I think about 12 years old. And she has me a piece of paper and I look down and I see it's a list of everything that I'd taken out of the library. <laughs> and she said, do you now know why I called you here? And I knew why, but I wanted to hear her say it. So I said, well, no. And she said, all you've been taking out of this library are science fiction novels. <laughs> and I said, yeah. And she then offered me this wonderful analogy. She said, you know, the mind can get ill just like a stomach. And if all you do is eat one thing, you'll get physically ill. If all you do is read one thing, you'll get mentally ill. <laughs> and I remember... I didn't say this, but my first thought was, well, it's too late for me. You know, I'm, I'm there already. <laughs> and so, and so and then she actually said, we're not going to let you take any more books out of our library unless you start branching out. And by the way, I'll just say here that now uh, they would be happy if you took out a pornography novel, you know, or anything, that, you know, at least you're reading, right? So... But what I did is I never set foot back in that library. Instead, I discovered our local public library, and I read every novel that was on the shelf. And so that was really when I began thinking of myself not only as a science fiction reader, but I knew that someday I'd start writing 
science fiction and publishing it. And, you know, the other important milestone in my life is when I was working on my doctoral dissertation with Neil Postman as my mentor, which mm -hmm. was Human Replay, A Theory of the Evolution of Media. I also was working on my first science fiction novel. And I had this idea that I would sort of, one day I'd work on one, the other day I'd work on the other. But I soon, soon came to realize I was having so much fun writing the novel that I'd never finished my dissertation. So regretfully, I put the novel aside, finished my dissertation. And uh, it was a good 10 years before I got back to the novel and writing science fiction. But I began uh, writing and getting short stories published in the early 1990s. Eventually, that novel was published in a series of novelettes and novellas. They're all tied together now called the Loose End Saga. And that's really how I uh, got involved in science fiction. Uh, you know, 20 years ago, I was president of the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America. I became so involved in it. There was a while when, even though I was teaching and doing nonfiction, I, I was maybe like three quarters or more of my professional life was in the science fiction world. I've always had those three things, you know, music, science fiction, scholarly writing and thinking about the media. And at any particular time in my life, they're all always there, but one or the other, like is, you know, on top comes up to the surface and the other two bubbling, you know, beneath. Well, <laughs> There you have it. No one can doubt your bona fides on the subject. Absolutely. Uh, so that, so see, this, this is what gets me thinking. Um, science fiction. Um, just maybe these are very basic questions. Um, but uh, for, for for instance, um, if you just look at say the Arthur C. Clarke quote, and I myself, I mean, I was reading, you know, two thousand and one. 2010, 2061, 3001, right? I was very big into Arthur C. Clarke specifically. I read lots of Asimov, right? Um, that, that was definitely also when I was going to read n novel science fiction was my choice. I really liked um, uh, uh, Day of the Triffids and, and, and you know, that uh, Wyndham, what was his name? John um, Wyndham. John Wyndham, yeah, and the Chrysalids, yeah. um, right? F fantastic stuff. Um uh, like, but when Arthur C. Clarke talks about, um, you know, sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. One thing that I I tend to notice a lot in the science fiction television that I watch is that um, the technology sort of gets hand waved away as magic, and so the only interface that you have through the technology is through the expert character whose job it is to make the technology technobabble do whatever it is that needs to be done. And so technology, much like real life, ends up sort of being the domain of some wizard who comes and makes it work for all the other human characters who are otherwise just trapped in this magical world. And so at some point, there's no difference between science fiction and fantasy. It, it's magical. Just one pretends to be science and one pretends to be, you know, waving a wand around. Is that a... It, how... Does that encapsulate a sufficient swath of science fiction technology? Is, like, am I just recapitulating the difference between hard sci-fi and soft sci-fi? Because that seems to be what's more popular, I think. Just... You're, hitting, you're hitting on a very important point. Uh, the you have uh, science fiction novelists, and actually in this case, Greg Benford is also a physicist who have defined 
fantasy vis-a-vis science fiction. Uh, he says fantasy is playing tennis with the net down. And, and that's like somewhat insulting. What Benford is getting at is when you're writing science fiction, you have to have scientific rigor and there has to be a plausible scientific explanation. And in contrast, according to Benford's view, when you're writing fantasy, as you quite aptly put, you can just wave your hand. Your magic spell you know, is what makes it happen. You don't have to even inquire much beyond that. Now, obviously, if you've read or seen any kind of epic fantasy like Lord of the Rings, there's an enormous amount of thought that goes into that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I actually even wrote a piece years ago back in 2002 after I saw one of the Lord of the Ring movies called Confessions of a Science Fiction Chauvinist, in which I realized that I had, I had been unfair to fantasy. But here is the thing about science fiction, which is very interesting. You're, you're completely right, uh, with the exception of a very few authors and Hal Clement, uh, anyone can look him up, uh, C-E-L-E-M-E-N-T is an exception. Someone, he's no longer with us, but he wrote some really excellent, truly hard science fiction where the, uh, the science is spelled out, or there's a... An author who I know very well is a friend of mine, John Stith. He wrote a book called uh, Red Ship Rendezvous, in which a ship is traveling faster than the speed of light, and there's a murder on the ship. And when they try to investigate the murder, what becomes something that has to be taken into account is literally how fast the ship was traveling at the time the murder took place, mm-hmm. because that would account for who might have seen or heard something. So the, those wonderful books, though, are pretty much an exception to the rule. What really goes on in science fiction is not that there's real science in there, but there is scientific plausibility in there. And that's you know where the sort of underbelly of science fiction becomes clear. So if you think about time travel, which I think about a lot because I just love it intellectually and I've written a bunch of novels, you know, the the plot to save Socrates and burning Alexandria and Chronica. And by the way, in Chronica, believe it or not, that was published in 2014. Joe Biden was president. There's a scene in 2050, so pretty good, huh? Mm -hmm. So anyway, but you know, how do my characters uh, time travel? They sit in a chair, and, you know, this is something actually that H.G. Wells, his character sat in a chair, and they press a couple of buttons, and, that, and there's really no other explanation for it. And, uh, you know, in, in that loose end saga that I told you about, which is also time travel, I have somebody who's like, and you'll appreciate this, you know, someone who loves the history of computers, someone is like stuck in a in a university in in the early 1990s and without you know the time travel machine and he hooks together a bunch of 286 and 386 computers (laughs) you know like about and somehow manages that creates enough power complete nonsense but he knew how to hook that together to, to to generate the field so the point is I think, and you know, most people agree when they think about it, in order for a science fiction story to work, you have to have a plausible 
development of science. It happened because of this. And, you know, it's sometimes easier than others. In my novel, The Silk Code, which won the Locus Award for Best First Science Fiction Novel of 1999, a lot of the plot hinges around two things. One, the Amish are actually much more advanced with a sort of low-tech biotechnology than we give them credit for. And if you've ever actually been, you know, to any Amish area, and there's one not that far from where we live, you know, a couple hundred miles away in Pennsylvania, you can see the thought they put into their devices. In other words, they're not anti-technology. They're just anti-electricity, and they're anti... The reason they don't like electricity is they don't like wires, you know, which, and they don't like the fact that they are indebted to some kind of master electrical company like, you know, Con Edison here. So, but, you know, so in th that novel, I posit that actually back in those Amish barns, they're developing, for example, lamps that operate through fireflies. I call it fireflight. In other words, you have fireflies inside a thing and it gives you great light. So in other words, it's a natural kind of technology. And, uh, you, you know, you can have an enormous amount of fun, I think, by just providing that level of scientific plausibility. The other main element in the Silk Code is that maybe the Neanderthals survived into the present day. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can provide, you know, well, where would they be? Maybe like in Basque country, you know, in between the mountains of Spain and France and so on. So... In all of those cases, the, the stories, I think, work as science fiction because I've provided a scientific plausibility. And that, that's, if you think about it, I don't think Neanderthals really did survive. I don't think the Amish do have that advanced technology. I certainly don't think that time travel is possible because, and again, we can talk about this for 10 hours, if you travel into the past to change something, mm -hmm. And you change it, how did you know to travel into the past in the first place to do that? The only way out of that is you create an, an alternate world, an alternate reality, the instant you make the change in the past. Mm -hmm. But creating alternate worlds at the drop of the time traveler's hat is even more crazy and unlikely than time travel. So, it so seems, whatever you want. Yeah. Yeah. So it seems you can generalize sort of by scientific plausibility. It's like if we break how reality works in this one really obvious way, here's how the rest of all of science and what's true would, would, would actually operate in relation to this to this one uh, thing that we're allowed to cheat for the, for the sake of, you know, the, the fiction. Um, uh, the, the most popular, I can't make that claim, um, one sort of... Uh, of such conceit which which is popular in fiction is that of the artificial intelligence the idea of machines becoming alive i was really into caprica the sequel to um to um Battlestar oh, galactica it was absolutely wonderful yeah. and uh it got canceled prematurely and uh, that was a uh, was a real blow for my general enjoyment of television and appreciation for science fiction that oh yeah and uh terminator sarah connor chronicles also i was really into that just because they were addressing these issues and both shows killed off before their time right um um and uh and yet, I think there's something particularly, particularly worth focusing on when it comes to popularizing this idea of stories about um, machines being alive. Um, 
Sherry Turkle is an uh, anthropologist at MIT who in 1984 wrote a book, The Second Self. Um, they, they were analyzing children, trying to understand com computers and looking at how these kids were developing psychological metaphors for understanding these machines that they couldn't take apart and couldn't understand by opening up, right? Uh, uh, you're looking at like so seven-year-olds uh, trying to figure out how their Simon Says works and the best they can come up with is, well, it's the batteries because that's all you can see when you open it up, right? Otherwise, these are op opaque machi machines. Computers are op opaque black boxes and you can't know what's going on inside of them unless the interface opens you up to what's going on inside right there are little black boxes that we, we you can't crack open there's right who who knows what when, when, what makes them work right and so children were susceptible to giving them psychological notions for want of actual technical understanding of what was going on oh this machine is cheating it's got intent to to rip me off because it wants to beat me at tic-tac-toe right all oh, this machine you know uh right um so this is the sort of thing which with um i think anthrop protropic interfaces like Siri or, or Alexa, you know, people are talking to computers now all the time. Um, here in Ontario, uh, on, on TVO, there's a frequent AI data collection company, um, data analysis company that, that, uh, that has an AI named Polly. And it's, oh, let's go ask Polly what the data says about this, about that, right? And it's all these, all these anthropomorphized interfaces to machines. And, and it's so much easier for people when they can just think that their machine is alive and they're talking to them. Um, does science fiction have sort of an obligation to dispel that sort of illusion? When that sort of illusion can lead to effects like people marrying their their um, computer AI um, hologram, like in the new Blade Runner film, or that sort of thing, is is there is is there a moral obligation? Are, are authors incumbent to show us what our reality is really made of? Like McLuhan said. Well, a couple of things. First of all, just to respond to that last question, no. I think the only responsibility science fiction has is to stimulate thought and entertain. Mm. And I think in general, certainly in fiction, authors are not responsible for what they might get uh, readers, what the reading of their works may lead to, because there's no accounting what the mind being exposed to something will do as a response to it. And you know, McLuhan's point that, that we, the audience, are even more responsible than the producer for, for making the presentation, it, it, that actually comes from Gestalt psychology, and I think it's a very profound and, and important point. But let me say a few uh, things about some of the earlier things you said. First, I, I also love Sarah Cro the Sarah Chronic the Sarah Connor Chronicles, and the uh, sequel to Battlestar Galactica. So I was right up there with you being disappointed. The, I think that uh, artificial intelligence it obviously is one of the most fascinating, cutting-edge issues. And from my perspective, if you look at Siri and Alexa and Polly that you're talking about and the best that AI does now, uh, it, it has almost zero in common with human intelligence. It, it's, it's, I mean, it, it has probably the same relationship to, to human intelligence as a parrot who talks has to real speech. Although maybe that's a little unfair to Siri and Alexa and Polly, but th that's the general point. And, and I think the reason that so far we haven't 
gone really very far in terms of developing a truly artificially intelligent entity. Anything at all like Terminator and, and Battlestar Galactica and now Westworld and all of these shows or humans, another very good show. The reason is, is that so far, as far as we know, intelligence is a property of life. Mm -hmm. And uh, somehow we human beings uh, in an evolutionary sense uh, emerged with our intelligence. I, I saw a, an article, very speculative, but it was an interesting article. I can't remember who wrote it, a scientist in, in the UK, that uh, he thought that consciousness had to do not with anything physical in the brain, but with just the way the, 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 the way that information is processed in the brain created, he thought, some kind of field in effect. And, and in human beings, that's what we call intelligence. I have no idea whether that's true or not, but the point is what he is attempting to do is explaining how intelligence arose in a living system and in living beings, human beings, to try to create something that's artificially intelligent without first understanding how intelligence arises from life. For want of a better phrase, I would say is putting Descartes before the horse. <laughs> yeah, sorry. But, it, but what, because what it's doing is it's trying to superimpose the appearance of the functioning of intelligence on something that is not alive in any sense. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, the, as we increase, you know, the power of computers, we can do this better and better and better and better. Mm -hmm. So if you ask, you know, Alexa, you know, where do I leave my toothbrush? Uh, you know, all Alexa is doing is, is just quickly processing an enormous amount of information, not truly thinking. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, you know, obviously everybody recognizes that humor is, you know, a fundamental part of intelligence. So sure, you can program a machine to laugh once you give the machine, you know, a hundred million examples of jokes. And if somebody says something and it matches it to that, you know, uh, template, yeah, okay, the, the machine will laugh. But true humor is something much deeper and more complex than that. So that's an ideal example of where science fiction waves a hand and you know we can watch something like Battlestar Galactica and love it and but it, it's it's at this point not only uh is that not possible now but uh, Battlestar Galactica certainly didn't provide us with an explanation of how that, that's going to be the case whenever it is hundreds of years into the future well put i agree i don't think um there's going to be intelligent um computer creations uh uh actual intelligence be behind the facade the interface well the turing test is is seems to be the gold water standard uh, and Catherine hales you know explains it very well in how we became post-human the idea is if the computer can trick you by hiding behind a curtain so that you don't know what's a computer, then it very well, just as well, may be real, right? So I guess I, I'm i still concerned that just because you cognitively know that it's an illusion doesn't mean that the medium isn't massaging you into an emotional relationship in the same way that we all have emotional relationship with brands. I know that this is a giant 
profit-hungry corporation with a smiley face, but the commercial works on me anyway. That's the message, right? I still develop brand loyalty to this brand or that brand, right? I'm Just because you know the AI isn't real doesn't mean you're not susceptible to falling in love with it, is, is my arguments, right? So, to bring this back to the information overload thing, um, art training our sensibilities to um, know what it is we're looking at, I think the first obligation... Again, here I am throwing ob obligations, and, and it's directly counter to the point that you just made that the artist has no obligation one way or another, right? Um, um, but uh, it seems like if art is to train our sensibilities to make sense of the contemporary medium, it should be making us feel that the machine isn't really alive, or it should be making us feel that this space, this cyberspace of infinite content inside of our computer isn't really a space. Base. It's you sitting alone, tripping on through your head through these images of this structured, patterned environment, which is made for you, right? And that's the first orientation that you need to then be able to know where you are in in this map or in this in this city. The first thing about walking around the city is knowing the city isn't even real, <laughs> and that the city's outside, and you should probably go take a walk, right? <laughs> well, listen. Here's what the problem is, though. Uh, you know, I agree with you that there is something that doesn't feel quite appropriate in in loving uh, a machine, having affection for something that's artificial. And I've been thinking about that a lot also. And one of the things that I've come to realize, what, something that I'm being able to do much more of because of being by and large staying at home because of the pandemic is gardening. Uh, you know, in, in my indoor plants, I've been able to do obviously all the time. But the truth is, in years past, although I love gardening, I never quite had enough time to get to know and nurture and take care of all of the various plants around the house, many of which I bought and put in, some of which go back to when we bought the house we're living in back in 1992. And I came to realize as I was gardening and as you know the world was almost falling around down all around me due to COVID and the worry that Trump might win. One of the things I realized is how much pleasure I get from gardening and I can't describe in any other way the affection, even love I have for the plants, mm -hmm. which if you think about it, it's totally ridiculous. I mean, what's the difference between loving a, an artificial apparition and uh, on the one hand, and, and loving a little uh, group of bulbs that I planted about 15 or 20 years ago, and they're still coming up now, and I pull out the weeds, and I make sure they're okay, and if it doesn't rain, I, I, I hand water them, I don't even just use a sprinkler. So, I mean, uh, the affection that I feel for my plants, I think, is analogous to uh, affections that people might feel for artificial creations, and it gets back, again, to what I was saying before, that, that is a reflection of me. It comes from me. It, it, the, so there's no point in being upset about what the object of the affection is. And I think mm -hmm. human beings, I mean, if you think about dogs, that's another example. People love their dogs as if they're members of their family. And, you know, it's up to hot debate. How much does a dog really know and think? And obviously, I mean, dogs have a level of intelligence. But I, I think it's a reflection of the human being more than the dog 
when you know someone says, "Oh, this dog, you know, I feel like it's my best friend. You know, he or she, you know, loves me. You know,、mm-hmm. I come home, I open the door, the dog comes running over, jumps into my arms, it's the small dog, and so on. All that is more about the owner of the dog than the dog, and、mm-hmm. and I think that's what's going on here with human beings vis-a-vis artificial creations." True. No, that's very. That's an excellent analogy. I, 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 I think you're on the money.、Um, this reminds me、um, of、uh, some software that、um, I used to play around with 20 years ago on the internet. Almost,、uh, it was programmed by some programmer named Greg Liedberg. I remember his name, and and it was a, l- a little chatbot that ran in MS DOS. And right, and he, his first one was called Billy, and his second one was called Daisy. Right, and so you're sitting there in DOS, and you're having a chat with your own. Computer and first it's just repeating absolutely everything you say, right? And then it slowly it starts to try and figure out the syntax of your language. And there's people who spend hours and hours and months and months chatting with their computer until you end up getting getting something of a semblance of a conversation, right? And、uh, people would be sh- in this little website would be sharing their their chatbots that they developed, or or、uh, there's a script where you could have it read through tons and tons of text so that、uh, you didn't have to tr- to train the chatbot manually, right? And it's all running on your computer. Offline, and、uh, there was lots of you know interesting people who were falling in love with their little MS DOS chatbot, right? <laughs> it's, it's probably a couple kilobytes large, right?、Um, and in that case, it's running on their computer, and they own it, just like your the your tulip bulbs are in your garden, or your dog is your dog. This gets me back to my original point, where. What about when this object of your affection is a Trojan horse, which is an interface which can be mucked around with by some other corporation?、Um, it's a Trojan horse into the the vulnerable interiority of your own psyche because you don't own Siri, and you're not reading the terms of license, and you you're not in control of the interface. The apps are changing for you automatically, and it's completely out of your hands. That's 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 the point where where I see that that there could be a, a serious problem. Yeah, well, I, I wouldn't disagree that it's a ser- that it could be a serious problem. I'm not sure if I think it already is a serious problem, and the reason is that first of all, I'm not sure of the power that all of those things actually have, and this is something I often、uh, think about, and you know, still think is the case. I, and I've proved it to myself at least many, many times. You know, people talk about being addicted to the internet, and that's like a, you know another aspect of what you are talking about.、Mm-hmm. And、uh, to me, a good test of whether or not I'm addicted to something is whether or not I can stop doing it. Right? Yeah. Yeah.、Uh, yeah. And you know, I used to. And I, I, I've been watching television all my life. Lots of television. There was a book called Four Arguments for the Elimination of Television by Jerry Mander.、It、came out in 1980. It was one of the first organized books that basically said watching too much television or even television at all can ruin your mind. And in my review, which I thought was a pretty cogent review, I said, "So, Mr. Mander, here's my review. Does this seem to you like a disordered mind? And、uh, unless you take the fact that I think your book doesn't make." Any really valid points, but other than that, what what is disordered about this? And for some reason, he never responded to me. But the point the point is, so 
now, obviously, again, because of COVID, we, we haven't gone many places. But, you know, up until this year, we would go up to Cape Cod every year for one or two months. And at, we were staying in a cottage where in the last couple of years, they finally got cable wired into it. But up until really about, you know, maybe like 2010, so not that long ago, there was no television in the cottage. And so I would go like a month or two not watching television. I didn't mm. miss it in the slightest. Mm. I was doing other things. And the other thing I would mention is when I'm really like writing something, whether it's a novel or a book or a scholarly article or working on music or any of those things, I obviously spend a lot less time online. And, you know, so people say, oh, some people are addicted to Twitter. I'm not. If I have to, I, I'm on Twitter all the time, but it's not like seeped into my life and taken hold of me in some nefarious way. I know that that's not the case because I sometimes go a day or two without going onto Twitter, not as a statement, but because I'm just too, too busy working on other things that I don't even have time to do that. And, you know, I know there are, people who, to give a, an, another example, are very upset even uh, at Netflix and Prime Video because you can be watching a, a series, like a television series, and it doesn't even give you more than three or four seconds between the end of one episode and the beginning of a new episode. And, and what their complaint is, is, well, th th they have you, they have you hooked, they, they don't let you leave, you know, you're losing control. Nonsense. You know, I watch those series. It's trivially easy at the end of an episode, if you don't want to watch the next episode, to just stop it. You know, so I, I, I have never seen any examples firsthand and in my own life where these, you know, nefarious media have, have gotten in and rearranged my life. So, yeah, the discomfort that we were talking about, that's an, an issue, you know, and we talked about you know, the updating of the systems. But as far as them seeping into our lives, it's a good science fiction story, but I don't think it's a reality. <laughs> well, there you have it. Paul Levinson, uh, thank you so much for uh, sharing your time here to talk about this discussion. I, w I could carry it on for three more hours, but I think we better give our listeners a chance here. Um, well, where can we find you online, Paul? Well, apropos of Twitter, I'm at Paul Lev, P-A-U-L-L-E-V. And actually, uh, my web page, where you have you know all of my nefarious accomplishments, is also Paul Lev, P A U L L E V dot com. So those are like two good places to start. I have a YouTube channel. I have two podcasts. But if you just search on Paul Levinson, you'll find me all over the place, doing as much damage as I can. All right, look them up, everyone. You've been listening to the New Explorations podcast on newexplorations.net. This has been Clinton Dignitov talking with Paul Levinson. Please take care of yourself out there in the information maelstrom. <laughs>